Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, The reading is from Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 and reading through to chapter 15, verse 7. We read together from verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You, then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, Each of us will give an account to himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, 
keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Well, as we stand, let me uh, pray for us. Father, as we've just been singing, uh, we pray that you would feed us with your word, food for famished ones. And that as we see that your word gives freedom for those of us who are enslaved to all sorts of things, we ask this evening that that freedom that we have in Christ, we would not misuse and therefore hurt others. Help us to see how we might do that and to change in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Uh, Well, uh, my thanks to Ben for leading us so far. He's going to come back in a moment and continue to lead us uh, through uh, the rest of the services. We take communion in a moment. Uh, uh, Let me welcome you uh, very warmly as uh, Ben already has. And let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 and 15. Uh, the reading that, uh, uh, that um, Fred read for us just a moment ago, page 1140, if you're looking for a page number. Uh, there are all sorts of things that I value about this church and enjoy about this church, but um, uh, without a question, uh, one of the things I value most is the unity we enjoy. Uh, unity is one of those things, it's not very sexy, is it, if I can use that word. Unity is one of those things that doesn't sound very important until you don't have it anymore. And those of us who've been in churches where disunity reigns knows what a complete disaster it is. You know, disunity is never good in any area of life. It always causes trouble. But in the church, it just feels even worse. And it should feel even worse. Well, tonight's Bible passage is about unity in in a church family. And when you think about what we don't have when we don't have unity, then you'll see why it's important. Uh, This section is all about Christians accepting one another. See how it begins in chapter 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. And then look at the end of verse 3. For God has accepted him. Accept him whose faith is weak, for God has accepted him. And then look at the same word at the end of the section, chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Now, when you see that sort of bookends, you see the whole section is about accepting one another. Having said that, I prefer the way the ESV has translated that word accept, and it uses the word welcome. Acceptance is a little bit passive. I I accept you. If I accept you, I, 
I don't mind you being around. But if I welcome you, I'm wanting to make you part of things. I bring you fully into things and consider you my friend. Welcome. So really, a better translation would be welcome. Christians should welcome one another and welcome one another in a way that means there is unity and harmony in the church. That's Paul's prayer there in chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart, that's a unity expression, one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See how this passage is working? Welcome other Christians in a way that brings unity and harmony in the church family and that all seems pretty obvious and I can't imagine anyone here disputing that that's important. But while it's obvious we should live in harmony with one another, it's actually very hard to live it. It is today, and it was back in the church in Rome. Look at verse 2, chapter 14 again, verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. In the church in Rome, Christians differed over the issue of what food they could or couldn't eat. We'll think about this in a little bit. It might have, there's all sorts of reasons why they might have thought this. One of them might have been, some people thought, well, if that food has been offered to idols, then I can't eat it. All sorts of reasons why they might have thought that way. So there was this issue over what you could or couldn't eat. And then verse five, they had differences when it came to how they should treat certain days of the week or the the year. Now, it's not difficult to imagine the situation in Rome. They were a mixed bunch from different cultures. And not least of all, there was a huge cultural gulf between converted Jews and converted Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. Imagine a small group from the church meeting for a prayer breakfast. The prayer time was magnificent. But when they sat down to eat breakfast, things began to fall apart. The breakfast was a full English, it would have been, wouldn't it, in Rome? And, and as some of the Christians rubbed their hands together in delight and tucked in without a second thought, others, like the Christians from a Jewish background, surveyed the plate and couldn't believe their eyes. The egg, fried bread and baked beans all looked very tasty, but horror of horror, on their plate was bacon, pork sausages and black pudding. Horrified, one of the converted Jews turned to the Christian next to him to vent his anger, only to discover that his neighbour had already polished off the bacon and was halfway through the black pudding. He'd eaten pork and blood. Things that a Jew wouldn't even touch, never mind put in their mouth. So what they ate caused real tension, especially between the converted Jew and the converted Gentile. Not that this was a uniquely Jew-Gentile issue. Remember, the Apostle Paul, who was writing writing this, was a converted Jew. But he had no problem eating anything, as we read in chapter 14 and verse 14, where Paul describes himself as one who is in the Lord Jesus and then says, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. I think it must have been one of the great joys of Paul's conversion to Christ, being able to eat with a clear conscience a bacon sandwich with his morning coffee. I'm sure that wasn't the key reason he became a Christian, but I just think it would have been a good thing. Now, the point is, this wasn't purely a Jew-Gentile issue, but this chapter is dealing with issues that arise between Christians who come from different cultures and have to work out how to live together with those who think differently on what I might call theologically secondary issues. You know, what you eat and drink and how you treat certain days, they're not primary issues. 
Now, look, if you're struggling to see the relevance of all this for today, let me try and bring it back up to date for you. When I worked at a church in Essex, we had a number in the church family who were from India. Now, they were fine Christian people. They brought much to the church family. But they'd been brought up to believe that Christians should never drink alcohol. Never, ever. And so they found it very difficult when they were invited round by other Christians for Sunday lunch to see Christians with a bottle of wine on the table. They wouldn't even have alcohol in the house. They found it even harder that Christians would have no scruples about going to a pub. And for them, drinking alcohol said that people were not really committed to Christ. That was the issue we had to work through. And these sorts of issues don't only spring up between Christians from different nations. I know British Christians who find it very hard that other Christians go to the pub after church. Those with the Salvation Army or Methodist background may have a real crisis of faith when they see Christians drinking alcohol. I think of my dear Nana. She was raised to believe that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. She wouldn't even eat food with alcohol in it. She wouldn't touch a cocoa van which meant that at Christmas time, we were always surprised when she chose to have the sherry trifle. Even though my mum would say to her, are you sure you want the sherry trifle? All became clear a few years before she died. After years of every Christmas enjoying the sherry trifle, every Christmas my mum asked my nana, and what would you like for dessert? This time she said, what would you like for dessert? And quick as a flash, she said, I'll have the cherry trifle. She thought it was cherry trifle. We said, cherry trifle. I said, yes. She said, it's sherry trifle. Oh, I'll have it anyway, she said. Anyway. (laughs) The point is this. What we eat and drink are live issues in the church today. And as a result, they have the potential to cause division among Christians. And the same is true of how we behave on certain days. I remember a Christian I respect and love enormously being distressed when it first happened a few years back now that shops were open for business on Good Friday. It didn't used to happen. And now it happens, and he was distressed because for him, Good Friday was a sacred day. On the other hand, there are Christians who see no problem with treating Good Friday as just another day. Now, it's similar with Sunday observance. And we can add to the list what films Christians should or shouldn't watch, going to nightclubs. Well, you know the issues that Christians differ from. They're important. They're primary issues, secondary issues, but we have differences of opinion. Now, this section of the book of Romans is not so much about how to work out the theological truths of these issues, but how we should treat Christians who have different views from us, how we treat Christians who, on secondary matters, believe different things to us. And as we've already seen, the big thrust is that we should welcome them, that we should strive for, and indeed Paul here, praise for unity and harmony among us. But before we look at how to do that, please take note of the terms that Paul uses here. Paul speaks of the weak and the strong. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat anything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Have a look at chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Weak and strong. Right through this passage then, in Paul's mind, there are two categories of Christian people. Those whose faith is weak and those who are strong. But, and this is really important, don't misunderstand these categories. The weak in faith, as he describes them here, are not weak people. The weak here 
was someone who was intensely scrupulous. The weak person keeps certain days sacred and abstains from certain types of food and drink. So the weak here is single-minded and determined and full of self-control. Not a kind of weak person. He may have had, if I may put it this way, very strong convictions that he's right and be able to articulate them. So please don't view the weak person here as some sort of shy, retiring violet. We might look at them and think, oh, they're a strong character. No, Paul only calls them weak because he believes that their faith is not developed enough for them to be able to believe, for example, in verse 14, that no food in itself is unclean. They have a weak, undeveloped faith in some areas of their life. By contrast, the strong has no such scruples about what he eats or drinks. And Paul numbers himself among the strong. You'll see in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, whether we understand all the nuances of the position of the weak and strong or not, what is clear is that there are people within the church family who disagree over issues of secondary importance. And this section tells us how we should welcome one another and uh, it tells us that we should do that and then how we should do that. One final word of explanation before we look at how we should do that. Let's be very clear that we understand that here in chapter 14 and 15, Paul is talking about secondary issues. Issues of what we eat in different days. What we learn here is in very great contrast to how we should respond to people who teach wrong things over primary theological issues. Turn with me to the end of the book, chapter 16. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks in more detail. But look at chapter 16 and verse 17. See here, Paul says this, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Not welcome them, keep away from them. See, there are doctrinal differences that make unity impossible. And when people hold to those things and teach doctrinal error on primary issues, Paul says we cannot have fellowship with those people. End of verse 17, keep away from them. So we mustn't get confused between the teaching of chapter 16 and what we're looking at tonight, chapters 14 and 15. Chapter 16, when people disagree with the apostles on primary issues, we must not have anything to do with them. Chapters 14 and 15, when we disagree with people over secondary issues, we must do everything we can to have unity and harmony amongst us. So back to chapter 14, and we see how we need to work this out. Look at verse three and notice the strength of the verbs in that verse. Verse three, the man who eats everything must not look down on or despise him who does not. See, some Christians in Rome felt superior to others. I can eat any food I like. That person's got this problem about what they eat. Oh, well, I'm superior to them in my faith. No, 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 you mustn't think like that. And verse three, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn or pass judgment on the man who does. You see, look at him, he's eating, he's even eating black pudding. He calls himself a Christian. No, 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 you mustn't write off other people like that as if they're not Christians. But verse 3 shows us there were very strong feelings of criticism, of scorn, of disparagement, of disapproval between Christians. And those emotions and attitudes are not only ugly, they're very damaging. And as we've already said, sadly, they can be very common in the church. 
Here, Paul is acknowledging that such differences of opinion arise, but he's also saying we must not allow them to divide us. We must learn to live with one another. More than that, to welcome one another. So how can I genuinely welcome someone who holds different views to me on secondary issues? Well, in this passage, and there's not long to go, we see one big principle and then one way to work it out. One big principle. Listen to the words of John Stott, who gives us this principle. He writes... The best way to determine our attitude to others should be is to, hang on, I've written that wrong. The best way to determine what our attitude to others should be is to work out what God's attitude to them is. Let me read that again. The best way to determine what our attitude to others should be is to work out what God's attitude is to them. Now, through this passage, we see the attitude God has to others. Well, he has it to us as well, but how he has it to others. Look again at the end of verse 3. God has accepted him. So when we disagree with another Christian and are tempted to sideline them, as soon as we remember that God has accepted them, that must motivate us to do the same. God has accepted Well, I can accept them. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And end of verse 8. We belong to the Lord. So when we have a difference of opinion with another Christian, knowing that person is the Lord's servant or slave, knowing they belong to the Lord must change the way I relate to them. Look at verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat as it is written. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue confess to God. So then, each of us will give account of himself to God. See the point? Other Christians are not answerable to you or to me. They'll have to give account to God for the lives they've lived. Therefore, verse 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Do you see how this principle is going all the way through? And then look at verse 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then primitive is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. My fellow Christian is someone for whom Christ gave his life. That's what we remember when we take communion. Not only that Jesus loved me and died for me, but that he loves you and therefore I should love you. The best way to determine what our attitude to others should be is to work out what God's attitude is to them. That's the one big principle running right through these verses. The one big way now to live out this principle, well look at verses 14 and 15, they're very clear. Again, Paul says, as one in the Lord, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Paul is theologically convinced that Christians can eat any food. But Paul says, when other Christians are not convinced of that, If now Paul's eating habits distress other Christians, he is not living in a way that is loving towards them. And because Jesus loved for them enough to die for them, end of verse 15, then he, Paul, should love them enough to change what he eats. See, right at the heart of this is the big principle of love. Love tells me how I'm to act, 
takes us right back to what we saw last week in chapter 13. Do you remember chapter 13, verses 8 8 to 10? I won't read them now. But they say, when we are loving, we are keeping God's law. Now, here in chapter 14, I see what it means to love someone who differs from me on a secondary issue. Let me spell this out as we come to an end. What this teaching is by giving you a worked example. I'm convinced that it's okay to treat Sunday like any other day. I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. I could argue my position theologically. I'm not going to do that right now. But in a sentence, I believe the Sabbath is about far more than what I do on a particular day of the week. But because I know that some Christians think that certain things should not be done on a Sunday, out of love for them, I will not do things that will, verse 15, cause them distress. So I don't mow the lawn on a Sunday or clean my car on a Sunday. Even though there have been a number of times when to do either of those jobs on a Sunday would be far more convenient for me, I won't do it. Love tells me that because some people would find it hard to see the vicar doing that kind of thing on a Sunday, I should not do it, even if I'm theologically correct. I will restrict my freedom out of love and concern for others. Others for whom, end of verse 15, Christ died. See, I must not use my freedom in Christ to hurt another Christian. That's what Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15. We might apply the same principle to drinking alcohol. I don't often drink alcohol. There are occasions when I do. And there are many reasons why I don't often drink alcohol. But I I don't think the Bible prohibits Christians from drinking alcohol. It is clear that the Bible teaches that Christians shouldn't get drunk. But I don't think the Bible anywhere teaches that Christians should abstain from drinking alcohol. However, there are Christians who would think that we should never drink alcohol. So out of love for them, I've got to make sure that I don't do an action that is going to make them distressed. And so I will restrict my freedom to drink alcohol in order not to hurt other Christians. For that is far more important that I love my fellow Christian by abstaining from drinking alcohol than I exercise my freedom to have a glass of beer. For, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if you look on to verse 18, you'll see it pleases God that I act in a way that promotes righteousness, peace, and joy among God's people. That's what God's kingdom is about. Righteousness, peace and joy. Not having freedom to eat or drink whatever I like. And so we read verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The work of God, fellow Christians. Don't destroy fellow Christians for the sake of food. Verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else That will cause your brother to fall. Now that's a big call, all of that, isn't it? Some of you didn't see any of that coming. Being asked to restrict our freedom in Christ for the sake of others in Christ. And right now, some of you were saying, this is ridiculous. And you're saying that you're really asking me to make these sort of sacrifices for others, even though I'm theologically correct? And when you feel like that, Paul says, end of 15, verse 15, 
Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. So as you kneel to take communion this, e- this evening, think to yourself, not only Christ died for me, but Christ also died for them, the people who are also taking communion, for those around me. And if he loved them enough to make the ultimate sacrifice for them, then frankly, what is it for me to give up some freedom for them? That's what it means to love others. And when we have that attitude, we will foster, chapter 15, verse 5, a spirit of unity in God's family, so that, chapter 15, verse 6, with one heart and mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we live that way, it is a very powerful thing. Not only that people see us unified, but going to some extreme lengths to be sure that we welcome people who have different views. You won't get that anywhere else in the world. Let's pray together. Father, this is a a difficult teaching because it kind of challenges some of us to restrict us from doing some of the things we love doing. And so we ask you, as we've been thinking all the way through about love, to fill our hearts with love, not just for you, but for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would so love others, that we would go to, yeah, some pretty extreme lengths to embrace them and to welcome them and to not in any, any way cause them distress or harm. Father, it seems to me this is, is really uh, quite uh, penetrating uh, in living the Christian life. And so we ask you to help us to think about how to work it out and to give us that desire to work it out amongst one another. We pray it for your praise and glory and for the power of the gospel to be shown to the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.